Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Olivia Lang adventures in the art of being alone in her book, The Lonely City, and then geographer Joshua Jelly Shapiro on the Caribbean and the world in his debut book, Island People. Olivia Lang is a widely acclaimed writer and critic. Her work appears in numerous publications, including The Guardian, Observer, New Statesman, Freeze and New York Times. Her first book, To the River was shortlisted for the Royal Society of Literature on Darty Prize and was the Dolman Travel Book of the Year. The trip to Echo Spring, which we talked about on our previous Little Atoms, was shortlisted for the 2013 Costa Biography Award and the 2014 Gordon Byrne Prize. And her latest book, The Lonely City, was also shortlisted for the 2016 Gordon Byrne Prize and that's the book we're going to talk about today. Olivia, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, nice to be back. I'd normally say... What's this book about? But let's approach it by saying, how did this book come about? Okay. Well, it came about by me being thoroughly miserable in New York. It came about quite naturally. I hadn't intended to write a book about loneliness. I was working on Echo Spring and I was living in New York and a relationship had just ended. A relationship had ended that I was going to move to New York for. And I decided that I'd come anyway on my own. And I was incredibly lonely. I was moving from sublet to sublet and it was quite a sort of disconnected experience and deeply uncomfortable but at the same time there was something very intriguing about it people don't talk about loneliness people don't write about loneliness it's this sort of taboo shameful state Mm -hmm. that you're not supposed to cop to admit to and that for me as a writer I'm drawn by those sort of taboo states so I was I was really fascinated by it I wanted to get to grips with it so I started to sort of record the experience and that gradually built into into the book. To the extent it's, you know, it's not talked about, it's shameful, to the extent that people don't really study loneliness either as a Mm. thing, do they? You do talk about some psychologists that have started to study loneliness as a condition itself, but it it is a relatively recent thing. Yeah, absolutely, which was really surprising to me. I think there's such a sort of human sense of wanting to steer clear from it, feeling like it might be infectious or invasive in some way that it's going to take you over, that I think that even affected psychologists who were studying it. So Freud never mentions loneliness. He talks mm-hmm. about anxiety, he talks about depression, he talks about grief. But loneliness is this sort of separate thing that doesn't get, that doesn't get mentioned. The very early psychologists who started looking at it in the 50s, um, Frieda from Reichman is, mm-hmm. is a particular example, 
talked very much about how weird it was, what a weird subject it was, that it was so sort of surrounded by silence. And now scientists are really grappling with it much more. When I was when I was writing about it, it was just starting to be much more written about subject in the last year or so. I think there are really quite a lot of pieces being written. But it has had this sort of almost uncanny effect on people. And loneliness is a, what should we call it, a condition, an affliction, a thing that if you're lonely and you're suffering loneliness, you sort of make yourself more lonely. You become more and more withdrawn. Mm. It becomes more and more difficult to connect to people as well. Yeah, it's this it's this sort of terrifying vicious circle. And I hadn't really... This is the thing that I most got from the psychologists, is the way that that vicious circle works. So the more lonely you become, the less good you seem to get at picking up social signals. So you start to, without realising it your sense of the encounters that you're having starts to warp towards very negative encounters. Mm-hmm. You feel that people have been rude to you. You remember the occasions in which somebody's been a bit cold or a bit mm-hmm. off. And in response, you pull away more and more, so those start escalating. But you don't realise that's happened. Your brain has become hyper-alert to threat because loneliness is a dangerous state for us. And you start to accelerate your own loneliness unwittingly, which I found really terrifying to, to read about, to discover... And it also made sense of my own experience, mm. which was that I was definitely becoming more paranoid, more wary, less open in my encounters with people. Well, let's talk about your experience for a bit. So back to New York. So to begin with, before we get to you know what this book is about, how did you deal? How did I deal? Well, I was. I mean, I did have a lot of friends in New York, but I was still, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, so there wasn't a job that I was going to each day. I was working alone all day. I was living in sublets rather than with people. My family, my very close friends that I'd known for a long time were in a different continent. So I was having an experience of spending a lot of time on my own. And at the same time, I was heartbroken. So I think that sort of was mm-hmm. colouring my experience. And then there was just the physical experience of living in New York that I'd be living in these, in these buildings, in these sublets, and maybe have a room or a couple of rooms. And I'd be looking out of my window at all these other windows, hundreds and hundreds of other windows, other people's lives, which invariably felt more populated mm-hmm. and more successful than mine. And that sort of magnified the experience. That That's what made me think urban loneliness as its own current is really fascinating. I mean, there's rural loneliness, there's mm-hmm. suburban loneliness, but there was something about the particular flavour of urban loneliness that I got very interested by. Well, the idea of being lonely when you're surrounded by millions of other people rather yeah. than in the middle of nowhere, yeah, yeah. sure. Let's talk about what the book is about then. So as I said, how did you deal with being lonely yourself? And this book, as well as being an exploration of your, you know, your own coping with loneliness, it's a series of profiles of artists yeah. that you, you know, that you. We'll talk about as we go through them aspects of loneliness and their own work as well. Yeah. But why did you gravitate to this? Why do you think, in 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 your particular condition, art was what you were looking for? It's really hard to say. I think initially I was aware of loneliness as a visual phenomenon, that the thing about the windows, the glass, it seemed like it was a sort of visual representation of the state itself, and it was a state I wanted to map, mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of physically map it, which is what led me to Hopper. Yeah. At the same time, when we're talking about loneliness as an urban experience, I was very interested in it as different from solitude, that it was a sort of populated experience. 
And I wanted to look at lots of different people who'd inhabited it in different ways. So I definitely wanted to explore it by way of somebody who was an absolute outsider, who was Mm -hmm. a shut-in, who was a hoarder. But I also wanted to think about people who were lonely but sociable. Mm -hmm. And that's what drew me to Andy Warhol. And then I wanted to think about people who'd used art as a way of making contact with other people, as a way of resisting loneliness. And that's what drew me to David Wonorovich. So I was sort of looking for people that had very diverse experiences of loneliness. But then the other thing was that I needed to really love their art. That was mm. what sort of drew me in in the first place. So Edward Hopper, who, mm. who you've mentioned, I mean, people will, will sort of picture as the absolute archetypal artist of that condition of being in the city yeah. with lit windows on your own surrounded. Tell us, talk us through when you, when you first saw Nighthawks in the actual, you know, in the... In yeah, the in the canvas. Um, yeah, that was amazing because I'd been studying it and writing about it at that point for a very long time, but mm. I'd been looking at it mostly on my computer. And there was a show, I think it was at the Met or the Whitney, one or the other, and it was absolutely packed because he's such a popular artist. So I was sort of drifting from room to room, kind of looking at everything, but really feeling very excited about seeing Nighthawks. And there was a huge crowd in front of it, sort of parted, and this... It's the most fantastic colour, that painting. It's got this very eerie aquarium green, this sort of neon green that is absolutely beautiful and artificial and unnatural and very much about the human in the city. It didn't exist before the human in the city. Mm. So that colour, the impact of that was very intense. And then just seeing... I mean, this is a painting of people in a diner, four people in a diner, and they're separated from each other by all sorts of clever little constructions that you don't necessarily realise. You pick up the feeling of it without necessarily sort of breaking down the architecture. They're separated by glass, they're separated by a bar, there isn't a door to the room, they're, they're in this sort of prison, really. And I found it very moving, actually, seeing, seeing that painting, seeing little drips that I'd never noticed before, because it's not the sort of thing that picks up on a on a laptop screen and um yeah it's it's a sublimely moving illustration of a state that I felt very familiar with you talk about Hopper's relationship with his wife mm. Jo um yeah which is a, a, a interesting shall we say I'm screwing up my face <laughs> um I wonder once you once you'd found that out how that reflects back on on his art Oh, God, it made a huge difference. I mean, I didn't know very much about Hopper at all, really. I I was very familiar with his paintings, as probably most people are, because they're so endlessly reproduced. But I didn't know much about him, and he he married very late. He was quite an isolated man, and he married late another artist, also in her 40s. And from the Hopper biography and from her own letters and diaries, it becomes apparent that he really tried to suppress her as an artist, that he kept her quite isolated... And that their relationship certainly sometimes became violent. I found it very hard to stay <laughs> on board with Hopper after that. I think he's a fantastic artist, and I think that's that's sort of separate from his personality. But it it certainly coloured how I looked at his paintings, which are very much about silences, failed communication, mistrust. These these sort of layers of division between people. So I think something of his biography flows into that and it was it was illuminating but at the same time it was really disturbing to read as well yeah well, I was going to say next well how does you know the loneliness of his own life which obviously we could see that in the paintings but how is that reflected back into his into his own life do you think how did the loneliness affect him in his own yeah. life yeah 
it, it's interesting. His his friend um, Brian Doherty speaks about Hopper's silence. That he was somebody who found it very hard to reach out verbally and who had a real quality of separation about him. He wasn't a sort of warm or unbending man. And that obviously fed his art quite intensely, but maybe didn't make him the easiest person to live with or be. And he he says, he's interesting when he talks about his work because he's always very sort of resistant to being pinned down Mm -hmm. about what his work means. Yeah, he certainly doesn't think it's about... Well, he does and he doesn't because he will say, yes, it's about the loneliness of a big city. And when pressed in one interview, he says this really lovely thing. He says, I suppose I'm a lonely one. And I always really liked that because it really seemed to hit on something that his paintings show, which is that loneliness is a common state. There are mm-hmm. all of these people in his paintings, individually, absolutely isolated. But they're a group of people, they're a body of people, they're the lonely ones. And that that's, is the thing that I think is most generous about his art, is that he's showing loneliness to us as a shared state, as a democratic state. I'm David Stubbs. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. The next section looks at Andy Warhol. And again, as I think you've already hinted at, not necessarily somebody that people would immediately presume yeah. would be in a study of loneliness because he was surrounded by people constantly. I mean, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah, and even when he's not, when he can bear to break away from people to go to bed, he's got the TV on because he cannot be alone. But at the same time, he's absolutely a lonely person too. Mm -hmm. Somebody who found it very, very hard to make intimate contact with other people. I mean, he had a huge amount of friends, but he really struggled with intimacy and certainly with sexual intimate relationships. And what really excited me about Warhol was the way that he solved that problem for himself was to use technology in various ways. Mm -hmm. So starting with um, the Philips tape recorder that he gets in the 1960s and then moving on into all kinds of cameras, movie cameras, Super 8s, the Polaroid that he has at parties in the 80s, he uses these devices to record the people around him, which is both a way of getting people close to you, sort of drawing them in, everyone wants to be filmed by Andy, but also holding them at a distance Mm -hmm. because you're the one behind the camera. And actually... When he was filming, quite often he'd just walk away from the camera and leave the person with the camera. So this sort of way of guarding himself from closeness that I found really interesting because I was in New York at the moment where everyone had just fallen in love with a smartphone. Everyone around me constantly was working away on their smartphone, taking photos of themselves. Mm -hmm. This sort of sense that Andy, as in so many things, was the sort of avatar of the present day that he saw this coming. And he's... I mean, apart from being, you know, an incredibly shy person, yeah. he really doesn't like himself. He doesn't have mm. a particularly high opinion of him. He thinks he's, like, completely unlovable. Yeah. Which obviously then plays into, you know, the, the, the way that he is uh, perceived by other people, but the way that he obviously approaches other people himself. Yeah, and, I mean, the pursuit for beauty throughout his life, both trying to sort of beautify himself in various ways. He's always knocking around at home, fiddling with his wig glue and, the and wig putting on and... makeup. But being obsessed with beauties as well and having having very attractive people around him and feeling absolutely horrendous about his own appearance. Sort of torment, I mean, when you read his diaries, which are incredibly funny, but are perpetually tormented by his skin and his nose and what he looks like, his body, and he's trying to work out and he's trying to get fitter and all these different things that are this deep sense of sort of feeling shameful and feeling, feeling unlovable. And what about... 
the work, I mean, in his sort of project to reproduce image after image of, of the same thing, I mean, again, is this some sort of another one of his coping mechanisms? I mean, I think it's not just a coping mechanism because he's also a very, very knowing artist and he's doing things that he thinks are intellectually exciting as well. But there's definitely something in his work, I think, about the pursuit of sameness, that when he's making the screen prints, which is, starts to happen in the 60s, He's very excited about the idea of these being common objects. He wanted to call pop art common art. And the sort of replication of things over and over again, the reassurance of every Coke bottle being the same, whether it's being drunk by a president or a miner, that's reassuring to him because he feels so excruciatingly isolated and so different. So he's excited by the idea that you could be identical. And I think that's the sort of pulse that runs through his art right to the end, really. This chapter is also a study of uh, Valerie Solanas, who, who now is most famous for having shot him, yeah. um, but has a, you know, an incredibly eventful and, and tragic life herself. Uh, tell us something about her, because clearly you, 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 know, you were keen to uh, yeah. you know, rehabilitate her, is perhaps the wrong word. but, but well, No, I think to... in some ways rehabilitate her, I felt like she'd been really hard done by, and I was, I was really interested, I, the Brianne Farr's biography of Valerie Solanas had just come out, which is a really amazing book, and I was really interested by how parallel her and Andy's lives were, that they were mm. actually quite similar, they were both from sort of working class immigrant backgrounds, they're both gay, they both felt very isolated growing up, semi-bullied growing up, and they're both hugely sort of talented, come to New York, crackling with talent. But Warhol finds his way, Warhol finds his people. I mean, it takes him a long time, there's a lot of doing magazine illustration work and really not feeling like things are taking off for him, but he does manage to create this unbelievably rich social life for himself. Valerie, on the other hand, cannot make those sort of connections she can't really connect with other people by way of her work and that's the thing she most wants to do she Mm -hmm. wants people to publish her work she wants people to read her work she wants people to be excited by it and her and Warhol fall out over a series of misunderstandings about him publishing something for her him using her work in some way and she becomes incredibly paranoid you can see that cycle of loneliness at Really, I think almost it's most malevolent in Valerie Solanas that she gets more and more isolated and paranoid until she shoots Warhol. Then she ends up in prison. And then you start seeing this other thing about loneliness, which is the isolation that happens to people who are stigmatised by the state rather than Mm -hmm. just by individuals. That she comes out of prison, I mean, really violent experiences in prison, and she comes out and people would spit at her in the street. People picked up this sort of weirdness or oddness about her and really punished her for it so on the one hand she's sort of paranoid and on the other hand she's picking up on what what people are genuinely thinking about her and it really creates this sort of breach between her and the day-to-day society so she falls into mental illness and she ends up dying in a welfare hotel in boarding house in san francisco and isn't found for four days and when the super comes in her body's covered in maggots and that seemed to me like the end of the road for loneliness that's Mm -hmm. the most extreme story i think in the book i mean it's henry darger as well but she really was completely cut off and yet her work is so exciting reading the scum manifesto was just it's bonkers it's wild some of it is absolutely indefensible but some of it is really Mm -hmm. smart and she's not writing like anybody else. And that, again, it felt really exciting to me that there's this, you know, sort of counter story to the Warhol story in the same way that 
Edward Hopper's wife is a sort of counter yeah. to Hopper's wife, who was in many ways just as talented. She's also particularly interested in the way that even, you know, on a, on a more basic level than, you know, somebody who's stigmatised by a princess or something, mm. how society itself isolates women, you know, yeah. the patriarchy isolates women from each other. Yeah, and she can absolutely see that. And mm. I mean, this is the moment when The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan has only just been published. It's so early days in feminism mm. and she's writing stuff that I think even today, third wave feminists would struggle to get their heads around because it's... it's um, know it's woke it's really like it's super alert to how structures damage people and people find that really challenging This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Olivia Lang. We're talking about her book, The Lonely City, Adventures in the Art of Being Alone. And Olivia, you mentioned in the first part, Henry Darger, as an aside, another one of the artists that you profile. And I'm just going to let you tell us who he is, because this is a remarkable story. Yeah, it's a really really, um, interesting and troubling story. So he, he was the Chicago janitor. He lived in a boarding house and... He'd had a very sort of distressing childhood. His mother had died when he was very young. His father had been disabled and not able to care for him. He'd ended up in a succession of orphanages that he tried to run away from. In the end, had managed to run away. So he'd spent his entire life absolutely alone, adult life alone, working as a janitor in various Catholic hospitals in Chicago. And at the end of his life, he became very frail and he was moved into a Catholic hospice and his landlord cleared out his room. He was a real hoarder, so his room was full of loads of trash, and his landlord came in to clear it out. And as he was clearing it out, he started to discover paintings, incredible, strange, profoundly disturbing paintings of a sort of civil war between adult soldiers and little girls, many of them naked and with penises, in these landscapes of of opulent flowers and storms and dragons so he's sort of picking out these pictures and being kind of bewildered as he slowly sort of works his way through he realizes that there's not just paintings but there's the longest novel in the world there's all sorts of diaries there's huge amounts of source material and he starts to realize that this person was an artist and now Henry Dugger is fairly well known as well probably the most famous outsider artist But during his life, as far as we know, he never showed his work to a single other human being. So he really fascinated me. He was really somebody that I knew had to be in the book somewhere. Can you sum up his world Mm. that he has created? (laughs) Yeah, so it's basically an alternate planet and there's a civil war going on between the Glandolinians and the Angelinians, I think it is. It's actually a while since I've looked at it. So these sort of, well, it's a bit like Trump's America, these sort of (laughs) armies of violent, vicious men and these seven little girls called the Vivian sisters and the rest of their their forces of good, their Christian forces. And really it's a succession of massacres. Basically, it's just these hugely violent acts. There'll be scenes of mass crucifixions, lynchings, disembowelings. 
but in these exquisite landscapes and painted with the most fabulous watercolours. So the paintings are really beautiful, really tightly organised. He was not in any way a trained artist. He was totally self-taught. And he was doing all of this in this tiny room that he also lived in. It's, it's just the strangest story. To what extent do we know how that world itself was his world? Do you know what I mean? Was he, like, yeah. living it? Well, the writing that I'd always read about him said he was a mentally ill person. There's lots of sort of attempts to diagnose him mm-hmm. by way of his, his diary or his paintings. And I found that really, really frustrating sure. and sort of slightly offensive. The idea that he was using a lot of similar techniques to Warhol, that was partly what I was interested by. He seemed to me a very sort of technically inventive artist. So I decided that I'd go and spend some time in the Dagger archive, which was in Brooklyn at the time, and... Look at his own. Look at his own work. I knew he. I knew he'd kept a diary, and I wanted to see what he said about his work and what he said about his life. And the thing that really struck me about it all was that he was somebody who was operating in absolute social deprivation, and at the same time, it didn't seem fair to think of his work as just being expressive of that social deprivation or that borderline mental illness. I mean, I'm not actually convinced he was mental, but if he was, there was more going on in the work. It seemed much more a sustained investigation into violence, not just the violence he'd experienced, but global violence, war, which has always been a subject for artists to mm-hmm. to delve into. And so there'd be um, things, in, things in the biographies or things in accounts of him that would say, well, he was doing all of this unconsciously. He was completely overwhelmed by his own fantasies. But if you sit there and look at the source material that he's labelled and boxed and photocopied and enlarged and constructed, it looks like any other artist studio. It looks like somebody who is carrying out a business of forensic investigation into a series of horrendous aspects of human existence. So I felt very, very moved by that. And then I think the other thing is that there's a class level to the analysis of Daga, that he's described as a hoarder and he's described as a sort of loony person who's filling his filling his room with all of this crap. But actually, if you put all of your own possessions into a single room, you'd look like a hoarder. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have very much space. It's not that he's got too much stuff. And then the things that he's picking up, okay, he collects a lot of shoes, but at the same time, he's collecting things like eyedroppers that he can use so that when a pencil's worked down to the tiniest stub... He can stick the eyedropper on and he can make the pencil usable. It's the habits of thrift. It's mm-hmm. not the habits of madness. And that that made me feel very angry. That sort of sense that people get isolated or get sort of turned into a strange person because of those sort of class blindnesses, I think, is, is another driver of loneliness, a much more political driver of loneliness, I suppose. What was it like to actually spend time yourself with his words, really, you know, living that world? It was upsetting, actually. It was really upsetting because he came across to me as somebody intelligent. I mean, there are jokes in there. There are sort of wry jokes. And he didn't have anyone to talk to. It The, the loneliness really came off it like a smoke almost. But he didn't feel like a crazy person to me. It felt like somebody who was never really... I mean, you know, the kind of work he was doing was just so awful and repetitive and the nuns who were running the hospital were so cruel to him. The fact that he managed to make this much beauty and intellectually rigorous work out of such poor soil, such poor conditions, seems extraordinary to me. I'm Emma-Jane Unsworth, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture.
David Wonorovich, who's the, yeah. uh, the the fourth of the of the, the the quartet of artists that you look at, and seems to be the most meaningful to you. Tell me yeah. why. I think I just fell in love with him. Really, he wasn't an artist I knew in advance. All the others, I was I was sort of very aware of. But when I was starting to work on this book, my friend Matt Wolf, who's a filmmaker, said, "Oh, you need to put David Wonorovich in. You need to go to the archive." So I started to look at his work, and he was he was a gay man who um, had a very violent upbringing he was homeless he was a rent boy in new york's times square for for a while in the 60s and then he became an artist and a writer and his work was very angry very beautiful very wild very good at sort of analyzing how the state how political systems how families how churches can isolate and deny somebody's humanity that had happened to him over and over again and then in the 80s, he was diagnosed HIV positive. His best friend died of AIDS. And he died at the age of 37, leaving behind this sort of record of resistance, really. He was somebody who used art as a way of speaking up against enforced silencings. And I just fell in love with that. I fell in love with his, with his courage. He wrote very, very honestly about his sexuality, his body, his illness, his fear, his... Rage, rage is a real one or over subject, and I was just absolutely beguiled by him. And you know, if any of these artists really medicated my own sense of of being lonely, it was it was David. I think I, possibly my favourite part of the book is you paint this amazing picture of this this world of the you know the dilapidated keys on on the the west side of Manhattan, where yeah. there's you know all of these falling down warehouses where there you know, there are homeless people, but there's also this sexual adventurism going on, and it's both like attractive and terrifying at the same time. Yeah. This world it just seems such so unimaginable now, such a such a distant world. Yeah, and I was I was really interested by that, and I mean again, like part of my interest in that was a lot of my sort of frustrations at the time with the idea that I was in my mid-30s, I was female, that there was a way that you were supposed to live your life and that was supposed to be a heterosexual, monogamous relationship and I didn't want that. I was having a lot of struggles with my sense of gender and just with the sort of narrowness of the options. And so I found it hugely refreshing to read David's writing about the peers or to read Samuel Delaney's books about Times Square and these sort of sexual subcultures where there could be sex as a balm for loneliness without it necessarily meaning that you're going along that sort of train towards monogamy and marriage, mm-hmm. that it could be something else. And that, that seemed um, illuminating and humane to me at a point where I was, I was so sort of frustrated and alienated by the options that, that seemed to be available. But of course, that's not the direction that world goes in, as you've already mentioned, you know, the 80s come along, and AIDS comes along, and this book becomes... Obviously, there are, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people, like an incredible amount of people who died in that time, but particularly the New York art scene is, is yeah. devastating. A generation of artists yeah. are lost at that time as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And David's sort of in the thick of that, so... This is the moment, this is the plague years, really, when there's a huge amount of stigma about 
about HIV infection. There's a huge amount of misinformation. And that sort of silencing is another kind of loneliness that I was really interested in, a kind of loneliness that cuts people off, that makes people ashamed, and that, in fact, there's research that quickened people's illnesses and deaths because it's such a profound thing Mm. to feel that you're a pariah, that you're untouchable. But the other thing, the other reason that that Wonorovich was such a hero to me is that he was part of ACT UP, he was part of the direct action group that arose out of the AIDS crisis to to fight sort of the silencing and the stigmatisation by the government, by Reagan's government and then by Bush's government, by the Catholic Church, by all of these sort of different bodies that were very much trying to turn a blind eye to, to what was happening in New York and other cities. So all of these other, I mean, Peter Hooger, Keith Herring, all of these other New York artists that you, you also talk about in the book, but I wanted to talk about another person in particular who I wasn't aware of before before I read this story, and then I, I also spent some time on YouTube looking at this stuff, and this is Klaus Nomi. The, yeah, uh, yeah. He's a, a, a German pop star, is not really right. Cabaret <laughs> artist is not really right. He's one of those sort of, you know, Lee Bowery-type characters. Yeah, except, I mean, I don't think Lee Bowery wanted to be famous like Klaus Nomi wanted to be mm. famous. Lee Bowery was happy in the counterculture. Klaus Nomi wanted to be a superstar, but he was... You know, he was an operatic countertenor who had a sort of electro-pop act. But like you say, he is also a cabaret artist. He looked like an alien. He's tiny, sort of exquisitely pretty, white powder white face, very black hair. Absolutely bizarre and endearing and wonderful. I mean, I love his music. I love his pop music. And he was the first famous person to die of AIDS. He was diagnosed very, very early on. The sort of descriptions of... His final days, he looks like a monster and that everyone's nursing him, sort of complete barrier nursing. The isolation of that really um, got to me. But that's so easy to turn into this sort of victim identity of those poor people with AIDS. And the book, I think, The Lonely City, really is not about that. It's it's about the reason I write about the AIDS crisis is partly to talk about how stigmatisation happens, but it's also to talk about how one of the solutions to loneliness is coming together to resist the forces of our loneliness. It's not about going on Tinder and meeting somebody. It's about thinking collectively. And that, I mean, God, in, in these times, like, we've all been on a demo yesterday. That feels really important, a really, really important message. Because I think those days of stigmatisation, those those people that Wonorovich talks about are back in power again. It's, it's the same old crowd. And that's their game. It is to divide and stigmatise people. Well, I do want to talk about going on Tinder and meeting people <laughs> and in that direction. You write in this book, but also in an expanded essay elsewhere, about the internet and the growth of the internet. And it was supposed to be this, you know, super connected thing mm. that's supposed to make people less lonely. But actually, in a lot of ways, it does the opposite mm. in that it sort of isolates us. And, you know, it's almost a, you know, a, a metaphor for that idea of being in a, in a, in a tall skyscraper looking out at all the other yeah. windows of people yeah. where you can see the life is going on, but it's, it's not your life. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I wrote that book a few years ago. I mean, I finished it, what, a year and a half ago. And that was one moment of the internet. But there are all these sort of continuous moments of the internet. And now the internet is starting to feel even more sinister because it feels like it's a place in which right-wing community has mm-hmm. has developed itself. I think it's always so double-edged. It has such potential for alleviating people from isolation, but it's a tool. It's not it's not a solution in itself and the directions that people go in their sort of 
ways of forming community or ways of making friendship or ways of making relationships isn't necessarily isn't necessarily positive I think right now I'm sort of more wary of it than I've been in a long time really you talk about the the work of the MIT psychologist um, Sherry Turk or tell yeah. us something about her yeah well she's she's very much she's very negative about the internet right now I mean she's written a series of of books and um, they increasingly say that we're losing our abilities to communicate with each other directly and in person, that we're losing the facility for intimacy and empathy. And at the time that I was writing this book, I was thinking, I mean, I was very deeply an internet person. I was spending a lot of time on Twitter and I was positive about it. I, I had reservations, but I thought that it was also a place where you could make connections with people who shared opinions and points of view that didn't share your physical location. In the light of recent events, in the light of the last election, I worry more that we are living in these sort of very separate bubbles and that the desire to be surrounded by like-minded people might not be as positive as I once thought it was, that actually there's something about being able to choose who you converse and engage with on the internet that you can't do in, in a city when you're surrounded by actual people, that you have to make accommodations to people who are different from you in a way that you don't have to online. So, yeah, I think my my opinions about the internet are kind of evolving quite fast right now. Just one more thing then to finish off. Having studied the art, been and seen the art, written the profiles, how did that art in the final analysis help yourself with your own loneliness and how do you think it might help other people? I think um, I th- there's this wonderful thing that David Ronarevich says, which is that he wanted to... Um, to make things that could speak when he couldn't speak because he was silenced and then latterly because he wasn't going to be around anymore and that they would speak to people who were on the same frequency they'd speak to the people who needed them and that really resonated with me at the time and I think that's what a lot of the art that I look at does it communicates something about the experience of being isolated and by doing that it resolves it at the same time, it heals it, because if you can pick up on that and you can see that somebody else shared that, something in you unlatches, you know, you, you have an ally in, in your state. And I think that really is um, soothing on, on a very deep level. So the works that, that sort of most, Wonorovich's work, some of Warhol's work actually as well, the things that really, there's a painting of Warhol by Alice Neal where he's, mm. um, it exposes the scars of the shooting, he's naked from the waist up he's wearing trousers and he's got a very um, unusually open expression and there was something about that painting that I just found so entrancing that you could look at somebody who was so badly wounded and see the beauty in it and that I mean it's such a cliche but at the same time actually that sort of bareness or that sort of rawness does have a liberating effect on on other people I think. I've been talking to Olivia Lang we've been talking about her book The Lonely City Adventures in the Art of Being Alone which is out at the beginning of March in paperback. It's out in hardback already, but at the beginning of March in paperback from Callengate. Olivia, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you so much for having me.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Andy Miller, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Joshua Jelly Shapiro is a geographer and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Review of Books, New York, Harper's, The Believer, Art Forum, and The Nation, among many other publications. Educated at Yale and Berkeley, he is the co-editor with Rebecca Solnit of Nonstop Metropolis and New York City Atlas and a visiting scholar at New York University's Institute for Public Knowledge. And Joshua is the author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World, which we're going to talk about today. Joshua, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, delighted to be here. Uh, the first thing that we should know is um, you're a, a white fella, so let's talk about how you first got fascinated by the, uh, by the Caribbean. Yes, indeed, I am a white fella. Uh, I grew up in the state of Vermont, so in, in New England, sort of northeast no US. Yeah, which is, uh, <laughs> which is not the most diverse place, you might say. But it's sort of a place that's full of hippies and farmers. And One of my first ins to being interested in the Caribbean was... Uh, in Vermont, there was this Vermont reggae festival every summer. Uh, and so I was growing up there in the 1980s and 90s. And by that time, of course, reggae and roots reggae in particular mm-hmm. really spread around the world. I think certainly among kind of counterculture people, music people, uh, you know, become tremendously popular. So I did. I, I spent parts of my childhood going to these concerts in the middle of uh, farmer's fields in Vermont where people like Burning Spear and Culture and Third World would come and perform. So I really, I fell in love with Jamaican music first when I was 12, 13. I had, you know, all the Marley posters in my wall and I worked in a record store in high school and 
and became enamored then of Cuban music, of various other musics from the region. Uh, but then when I went to university, when I was 18, I, I decided I didn't want to just, you know, engage with the music as music, but to understand the history of where these cultures and sounds came from. Uh, so I studied Caribbean literature and university, started visiting the region, and, and really have made it my life as a scholar and writer for the last 15, 20 years. There's a long tradition of people from elsewhere going to the Caribbean and other places and writing, you know, exotic travel stories. And I want to talk about how, obviously, some of those people are an influence on, on this book, but also how you've done things differently. Yeah, absolutely. No, the, the question of genre and thinking about travel literature and travel writing, which here in the UK, I think, actually has a, has a resonance that is a stronger one than in, in the US in, in certain ways. And that's partly because, of course, travel literature was in many ways a kind of imperial practice. You know, it's about these hale fellows venturing off to strange places and returning with stories about what was strange about them. And so that literature, you know, of course, did produce some, some writing that, that's really lasted. It produced some problematic writing. And of course, the ghosts of people like Patrick Lee Fermer and, and mm-hmm. Naipaul and sort of some of the 20th century travel writers are very important to me. But what I really endeavored to try and do in this book, I like to think of a quote from Toni Morrison, who, who said something to the effect of that all writers in the new world have a, have a job to create a new map of the new world that's about discovery, but that's not about conquest. And that's a lovely idea. It's harder to do in practice than to say. Um, and of course, my experience is, is shaped by being a white guy with a U.S. passport. Mm-hmm. It could not be what I have access to, what I don't have access to, what I understand, what I don't. But I've, I've tried to essentially make the aim of having a human connection of discovery the center of what I try to do as a travel writer. But also this book about the Caribbean, the key point about it is that where many of the people who visited the islands previously were writing about a marginal place, a place mm-hmm. that they thought was just... This old slave colonies, there's a bunch of black people there. They're not important. And to me, what I've tried to do in this book is to put the Caribbean really at the center of any story we tell ourselves about the making of the modern world. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is the, the idea behind the book, that the Caribbean is in some way the, the crucible in which a lot of the phenomena of the modern world began, whether that's you know, mass immigration, capitalism, things like that. Expand on that a little Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's at the heart of this. And, and really what I do there is to riff in certain ways or engage with, with C.R.R. James, the yeah. great writer and historian from Trinidad who wrote what's still kind of our greatest book about the Haitian Revolution, the Black Jacobins. Uh, and James argued back in the 1950s, and I build on what he had to say there, is that, that the Caribbean, right, for a few reasons, was really at the heart of the making of, of our modern world economy, of modern world culture. For one thing, the Caribbean was a place where not just some slaves were brought, but fully six million enslaved Africans were brought to the Caribbean over the period of centuries. You know, in North America, what became the United States was a few hundred thousand. It was really, that was the marginal place in terms of the triangle trade. So the Caribbean was really at the center of that. It's also the case that in places like Jamaica, Barbados, and then especially in Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, in the 1700s in Saint-Domingue, James writes about how the incredible volume of industry and production and people that were coming there and having a sophisticated division of labor and having these essentially factories in the fields, we think of as only having happened with the Industrial Revolution in mm-hmm. Europe. And he makes the contention that 
really those things were happening in the Caribbean first. Mm -hmm. And that in those ways, it was kind of a harbinger of what came next. But then also, of course, he points out that the Caribbean was this place where things that we think of as uniquely modern, like people moving thousands of miles to work at industry, like cultural mixing as a fact of life, like having to learn new languages and engage with all kinds of people, right? That that was happening in the Caribbean from the 16th, 17th century on. Uh, And so that they're not sort of new phenomena there, that they've been there for a very long time. And it's hard to think of both modern culture and our modern world economy without without having the Caribbean uh, central to the story. I want to talk about perhaps a, a daft-sounding question, where is it? Because you obviously, you know, there's, there's only a, a limited amount of places you can cover in this book. There's thousands of islands, um, and, and you concentrate on the, the greater and lesser Antilles, and I would also, you know, I would consider that Barbados and Bermuda were part of the Caribbean, but you, you don't in this book. But also there's an idea of, you know, the, the, the rim of the Caribbean Sea and places like, you know, Colombia and, and South, South and Central American countries that have some sort of, like, shared culture, perhaps. Absolutely. No, my, and I'd be the first to agree with you that places like New Orleans, where I, I love to hang out, it was a deeply Caribbean place. Mm-hmm. Same with the north coast of Colombia, where Garcia Marquez is from, you know. Hundred Years of Solitude, to me, is a totally Caribbean book, right? And so there is a big question running through my book and what I've tried to do with it. This question of, if you're going to talk about what the Caribbean is, of course you have to talk about where it is. And for me, my book is partly a journey through the Caribbean as idea, and it's sort of thinking about this idea of Caribbean-ness, what is it? And as I say, I absolutely concur that what we think of as Caribbean, what counts as Caribbean includes the lands that rim the sea. It also might include places that people from the islands have emigrated to. But for the purposes of this book, and this was partly because it's already not short, (laughs) I had to bound it somewhere. And I was also interested in islands as particular kinds of places and islands as in certain ways symbolic of the Caribbean and of Caribbean-ness. So I, I limited my study to the islands, but as I say, I, I absolutely think uh, there are many places around the sea that, that could also qualify. The converse of that question perhaps is, I mean, is there a Caribbean identity? You know, this is a place, again, as I've said, of thousands of islands, but also many languages and cultures. So do the people that live there, in, on the whole, identify as Caribbean? Right. It's a great, it's a great question, and I think that What's really interesting, what I found in researching this book and in engaging with uh, the region for a very long time, is that in the political and intellectual culture of these islands, there's absolutely a strong strain of saying we're Caribbean, you know, whether we're in Martinique or Jamaica or Cuba or Trinidad, there is something that joins us. And it's about the history of slavery and it's about living on these tropical islands and it's about many things. Mm Of course, on those islands, it would be very rare to hear someone say Mm -hmm. that they are Caribbean rather than Jamaican, say. But I think that one thing that's really interesting along in terms of how that conversation happens is that once people have left, once people have migrated in big numbers to places like London, to New York, to Toronto, that these cities enable conversations that don't necessarily happen in the islands. And so that you do certainly see the emergence of a West Indian identity or a Caribbean identity in these northern cities where people where people move and then they party together and have carnivals together and 
And there's interesting ways in which that conversation is enabled in certain ways by leaving the islands. You've mentioned um, C.L.R. James already. I wanted to talk about it. In the book, you, there's, there are sort of studies of a number of Caribbean intellectuals. You mentioned V.S. Naipaul. And in fact, I probably like, we should probably talk about V.S. Naipaul a little bit because also, you know, among many things, a travel writer. Tell us something about him. Yes, Naipaul. Well, he he's sort of the unavoidable figure in in writing about the Caribbean, certainly in writing a travel book about the Caribbean, one of his first books, of course, was The Middle Passage, which was a, a travel narrative. Uh, he'd been in England for some years and traveled back home to where he was from in Trinidad, uh, actually commissioned to do so by the Trinidadian government, the new Trinidadian government, mm-hmm. which is interesting because he... famously grumpy <laughs> Yeah, he sort of proceeded <laughs> to heap scorn on where he was from. He didn't... He didn't love growing up in Trinidad, and I think that colored everything that he had to say about it. No, so Naipaul, of course, is a notoriously grumpy writer in general. In that portrait of the Caribbean, he notoriously called it half-made societies. And he's someone who, you know, when you go to Trinidad, of course, there's a great deal of pride that this great writer came from there. There's also a, a complex and vexed relationship because as a literate friend of mine, well-lettered friend of mine there, uh, put it to me once. He said, Vidya doesn't have affection for us, so why should I have affection for him? <laughs> Which was a fair point. Uh, but he is he is this unavoidable writer because he was such an incisive observer, great maker of sentences, and a great sort of seer through the surfaces of things to look at uh, hypocrisies and complexities. And so he's one, one has to engage with him in do the you, Caribbean and as a travel writer too. He's such a big name. Do you think that you know his opinion coloured how other, how people elsewhere saw the Caribbean? I think you know. I I think it's 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 fair to suggest that for sure. I mean, he he uh, he is such a big name and and uh, a, a revered writer with reason. It's very curious to read the Middle Passage because he, in a certain way, is adopting a kind of imperial worldview, becoming in a way kind of more English than the English in terms of the scorn that he heaps on, on these places. And it's quite interesting to compare him, for example, with a Patrick Lee Fermer, who I invoke because his book, The Traveler's Tree, which came out a decade before the Middle Passage, so uh, early 50s versus early 60s. Patrick Lee Fermer is a, you know, very much in the grand tradition of British travel writing and, and uh, venturing off uh, into strange places. But his approach to the Caribbean and the Traveler Street is a great lasting portrait of the region. He was he was fascinated by it and was very sort of warm and open to the place. There's are certainly bits of that book that are outmoded and wouldn't read well to us now. Yeah. She's very much they had the Panama hat and flannel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, he had his linen suit and you know, called people negroes and these sorts of things. So he you know, he he's aged in that way. But um but it's very interesting to see Someone he was a very kind of open-minded and, and learned and, and curious person. Uh, so he didn't have an agenda, so to speak, in going to the islands. I think that Naipaul really, you know, he <laughs> he had some sort of scores to settle uh, in the place where he was from, and that and that that shaped that book. And so, really, what, I, what I'm trying to do in this in this book, and it's very much in certain ways in the footsteps of of those two writers, especially, but is to really offer a vision of the Caribbean that, as I say, is not about presenting it as a marginal place, but presenting it as 
fascinating and as rich and as full of problems and trouble as, as we know, but also as a place, as I say, that's really central to our culture still. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joshua Jelly Shapiro. We're talking about his book, Island People, the Caribbean and the World. And Joshua, we were just talking about Naipaul and, and James. And as I said, there's other towering figures mentioned in this book, Franz Fanon and obviously Fidel Castro. But the book is called Island People and very much the focus on discovering the region is through not towering people, ordinary people. Although, to be fair, in the Caribbean, everybody's extraordinary, it would seem. <laughs> right. No, this is... Well, I love what you're getting at there, because um, it's absolutely the case that what I try and do in writing about even the great figures, and I have to engage with them in this book, and I'm fascinated by those people you mentioned, the Fanons and Castros and Marleys and, and Jean Reeses and all, all these people... Mm-hmm. Uh, is that what I try and do is to write about them not by writing necessarily just the facts or the stories of their lives, but to write about them by visiting with people who were around them, which is a, a way that you know many writers I admire have, have sort of gone about gone about this, and I think it's a it's a nice way to write about someone. The, the celebrity interview, so to speak, as any journalist can tell you, is often mm-hmm. the worst way to learn anything insightful. About someone. So going to to meet people, you know, if I'm writing about Marley, to go up Mm. into the hills of St. Anne's and, you know, find the people he grew up with or the guy who uh, dug open his grave to turn it around because they thought his head wasn't facing the sun. These these sorts of people. But but what you say about outsized characters and people creating themselves as characters, I think absolutely that runs through any kind of study of Caribbean culture the way certainly that I presented, that there seems to be something about these new world societies. And especially, I think, on the bigger islands, it's fair to say, where people are even more extroverted than on the little ones. But um, where people, there's this this kind of will to create oneself as a character and to have fun with language and to and to be a sort of outsized, outsized figure. The performative culture, right? The music, of course, is extremely important in all of these places as is fetting and carnival. And, and, and these things run through the islands up from the, from the bottom to the top. You have um, Chris Blackwell, obviously the, the, the head on Joe Island Records, saying, obviously in, in reference to Jamaica, but it could, could go for everywhere, that this is a place with a soundtrack. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, you've, you've already mentioned talk that wanted to get us on to, to Marley. And as you've said, particularly on, you know, you, you look at him by going and meeting and talking to the people who knew him. As you've, already, as you've already mentioned that, perhaps we should talk about dance hall for a moment mm. and your, um, your encounter with this, uh, this rather colourful Lady Saw. <laughs> Lady Saw, well, absolutely. She, uh, the sort of once in future queen of the dance hall, right? She, uh, she's a remarkable figure. Of course, the thing about Jamaican music since the 1970s, since the, the roots reggae moment that is really what broke it worldwide, 
through people like Marley and, and, and many others, is that in the 1980s and the 1990s and still to today, right, Jamaican music in a lot of ways turned willfully inward in the sense that it was very much dance hall became, you know, it's much faster, it's much rougher, the recording quality is sort of intentionally not polished. Mm -hmm. Many of the lyrics are in patois, which is to say that uh, outsiders wouldn't necessarily understand them, whereas Marley, you know, sang in beautiful English, which <laughs> is part of how he got over. But Lady Saw is a great iconic figure in that world who uh, became prominent by singing extremely slack songs, which is to say sort of sex songs, but is a very fierce feminist. You know, she's been very outspoken about the sort of strength and power of of women and, and Jamaican women, which is interesting and important there because this is a society that's really many households are run by women. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a society that really revolves around women in all kinds of ways. And so she's a great, a great kind of feminist icon who I, I, I went to interview in a, you know, TGI Fridays. And we talked a little about songs like Stab Out the Meat, which was one of her, one of her first sort of sex ditties, which she caught a lot of flack for. Uh, but she made a great sort of coherent argument about how this was a this was a pro woman song, but she's a you know a complex and interesting person, and it's worth saying though too about her that she now she sort of periodically found God and and started singing gospel, which is interesting because she exemplifies Jamaica in that too that Jamaica is an extremely religious place you know people like to say that there's more churches there per square mile than anywhere which is one of those kind of totally unverifiable stories, but one believes it because mm -hmm. the, as the saying goes, you know, the Jesus business is good in Jamaica, but it's, it's interesting because dance hall culture and, and what's raucous and raw and, and incredibly sort of suffused with, with sex and crassness uh, about the, about the musical culture there is, uh, is not the most Christian you might say, but there's an interesting, there's an interesting tension kind of running through running through Jamaican culture in that way. I wanted to talk about Rand Jamaica, the contradictions of trying to sell Jamaica as a, a sort of tropical paradise for tourists. Like everybody would you know know that the um the, the capital of Jamaica is Kingston, but in this in this book, you know, you fly to Kingston and you're pretty much the only white person on the plane because tourists just don't go to Kingston. Right. No, exactly. That's uh you know, people people sometimes fly into Kingston, but then they get on their bus and they go they go away. So Kingston is no precisely Kingston's the capital of the country, but it's it's not where the resorts are. And this idea of brand Jamaica that the Jamaican government has been touting for some time now, and which actually dates way back to around the time of independence mm -hmm. in, the, in 1962, but has been brought back recently. And of course, initially it was just about creating Jamaica as a great tourist destination and and touting its sand and its sea, and, and uh, which it has very beautiful beaches and so on. Uh, but the thing is, is that every island in the Caribbean has great beaches. And so Jamaica, of course, is aware of the fact that they do have this extraordinary music that has influenced the world, that's visible everywhere. And so this idea of Brand Jamaica, the new idea, is very much about, oh, how are we going to capitalize on our visibility? We have our music, we have our sprinters, we have people like Usain Bolt, and... And, you know, maybe that's a that sort of route to development. I think personally, as I write about in the book, that it's a it's a tricky uh, argument. For one thing, sort of capitalizing on music in our digital age is a hard, a hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. And Jamaican culture, as I as I 
explore at length. You know, it's this incredibly rich, varied, wonderful, wonderful culture. How one capitalizes on it or monetizes it, so to speak, is a is a trickier question. But I think people, even in the realm of tourism, you know, there are people who are thinking about it in in better and more progressive ways. That tourism for a very long time has been about you know flying people into these resorts and they never leave the resort and it's really a losing deal in a lot of ways because many of those hotels are not even owned by people on the island mm-hmm. they're owned by spanish conglomerates or whoever and and the people who fly there they don't really get to know anything about jamaica they might as well be in the dominican republic and next year they might go there if it's cheaper but there are people who are think trying to think about doing tourism in a better way chris blackwell is actually one of them that he you know, runs all these very lovely kind of high-end resorts, Goldeneye and, and Strawberry Hill and places. But he's very keen. He's a, He grew up in Jamaica and, and, and loves the place and is very keen to say that if you want to come here, you know, the thing to do is to is to get off of the resort and engage with people and engage with with uh, how they live and the music they listen to and the food they eat. And Because Jamaicans are, are remarkable, uh, incredible talkers and, and musicians and creators of culture. I've talked on the show before with the, uh, the journalist Johan Grillo about the garrisons and the rise and fall of Dudas the Don. And also I'm keen to move away from, from Jamaica as we've been like for ages. So let's move on to Trinidad. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I don't even necessarily just want to focus on Trinidad and crime, but there is a scene in the book where you have a gun pulled on you. So mm. perhaps we should have. What's, what's happening in Trinidad? Well, Trinidad, there, there is a moment in a book where we get held up at gunpoint it's true but I, I only give it a sentence I don't dwell on it uh, <laughs> but it's um, but yeah Trinidad is you know Trinidad crime is a real issue there for sure but it's a place Trinidad's a big island right I mean not big geographically but it's it's got over a million people way down of course at the southern end of the Antilles and it's always been a destination for people from small islands people go there for work it's, it's always had a stronger economy relatively to its neighbors it also is right off Venezuela, so there's oil and oil money. Uh, so it, it is this place that has some some sort of wealth. It's also, of course, the place that... I, I mean, I love Trinidad dearly. I've lived there off and on for little stretches, and uh, and I, I've just been enthralled and fascinated by the culture and the dynamism of it. Trinidad, of course, is very... is quite distinct from the other British islands in that it wasn't always British. You know, it was Spanish for a long time at the at the beginning after Columbus sort of turned up there. And then there were a lot of French people who settled there because the, the Spanish wanted to populate it and they said other Catholics could come. And then it finally became English, but they didn't, unlike Barbados, which is not far from Trinidad, right? Barbados was just English for, you know, it's been English for uh, nearly 400 years now. Uh, and it's been a, it was a plantation colony and that's what it was. Trinidad... You know, had slavery, but just for a few decades, once the, once the Brits took over. Then, of course, once slavery was ended, they needed other people to cut sugarcane and, and, and work on the cocoa plantations. So imported, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of indentured workers from, from India. And so what you have now in Trinidad is this fascinating, unique ethnic mix and culture where... You know, it's it's in large measure African, in large measure Indian. It's very mixed, but you have people from everywhere, Chinese, Portuguese. And then everyone parties in a Catholic carnival. You know, so it's a it's a great it's a great incredible mishmash. And to me Trinidad is a is a great kind of microcosm for the Caribbean, for the New World, that all these histories and cultures overlapping and 
and trying to create something something new and something joyous and interesting and, and of course the the dynamism of that is is really pretty irresistible to me and of course Trinidad one thing about it is that Trinidadian music is every bit as as rich and, and marvelous as Jamaican music calypso and soca and, and so on steel band but Trinidad never had its Marley you know mm-hmm. Trinidad never had its its crossover star its world star it did have of course there's great legendary Eclipsonians, Lord Kitchener and Mighty Sparrow, who every West Indian everywhere knows. But they never had the kind of the crossover thing to lots of white people or rock fans got into. Mm-hmm. And so that that's interesting. So Trinidad I think is a is a little bit of a better kept secret in the sense of sort of world culture. But I think you know it's very interesting. That's starting to change in a kind of covert way. But now of course Soka which is the music that people dance to during carnival. It's more, you know, raucous and fast-paced than, than uh, Calypso. But now there's been, there's been a remarkable kind of stretch of pop hits and northern pop stars who are very into soca, and partly that's about acts like Major Lazer and producer Diplo and, and people like this who've been kind of, you know, hip to soca and into, into spreading it. But, you know, Justin Bieber had a massive hit last year that's just, a, you know, it's, it's soca. So, so the, these rhythms really do run through and, and shape pop music, and they they have been doing now for decades. And, and Trinidad, in in certain ways, uh, as much as Jamaica. And we're, we're nearly out of time, and we've barely touched on the uh, many of the islands. The book has stories of uh, Haiti and Grenada and Martinique and Dominica and Cuba. But I want to finish off right back at the beginning, and there's a there's an epigram from the writer Judo Diaz at the beginning of the book, which says, "We're all in the Caribbean if you think about it." So, do you agree? I do. Why? Well, I, I better if I put it at the beginning of my book. Uh, it's a good sort of provocative way to start off. But of course, what I what I like to think he he meant by that, I can remember actually when I heard him say it. I was just in a bookstore reading. This was years ago, so it's just a remark he made. But of course, he was he was gesturing at what I write about in this book, that the Caribbean, in a lot of ways, as he would put it, is the ground zero of the new world, which is to say it's also the kind of ground zero of of our modern world economy. It's where Columbus went first. It's where slavery happened. It's where, it's where long-distance trade, all these things happened mm-hmm. in this crazy laboratory for, for bringing people together and, and in new ways, uh, often in incredibly violent ways. But I think that what has then developed there in this part of the world and, and among people from that part of the world in diaspora is something that's that's absolutely central to our modern world culture. It was central to starting our modern world economy and it's at the heart of our culture now. So that's 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 my contention in the book and so I think old old Juno was right. <laughs> so I've been talking to Joshua Jelly Shapiro. We've been talking about island people the Caribbean and the world, which is out now from Canongate Books. Joshua, thanks so much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.